So here's how I want us to start today. I want us just to walk through the first eight verses. We're going to take about 10 minutes. This is not in your notes. It's not in the worship guide. I don't even have notes for this. I just have a piece of paper with the verses on it. We're going to practice what I hope you're doing on your own. We're going to see what the Lord highlights to us. We're just going to see what jumps out to us as we walk through these eight verses. So I just want us to read along slowly. I'm going to stop in certain places wherever the Lord directs and emphasize to you what we see. And then we will take our worship notes and we will get to the main focus of today, which if you've looked at the sermon title, is what I believe the core message that God has for us in Colossians 1 today, and that is hope. So Father, thank you this morning for breath that we are able to return to you in singing. Thank you, God, for the hearts in this place that have cried out to you today, that have worshipped you in singing. I ask now, God, that you would help us to worship in your word. I ask that you would help me to decrease and that Jesus would increase in me and in all of us. And Father, as I preach, as we hear, I ask that you would exhort the people in this room and those watching later in this word of wisdom. I pray that you would do that in the Spirit, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and that you would give us passion for the person of Jesus. This word is about Jesus. Give us passion for Him. I want us to have zeal for your word, God, but not just as a book, as a living word that points us to the word that became flesh. So God, give this church a heart for your word because they have a heart for Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Paul was previously a very rich religious man who hated Christians and hated Christianity. And he turned from what he had known all of his life. He turned from his notoriety. He turned from his fame in the circles of Judaism. He turned from his wealth to become a man who now, as he writes this letter, is imprisoned for the very gospel that he was once trying to destroy. And now he is writing to this church in Colossae, as we talked about last week, that he has never visited, and he did not start, but he has had a connection with them through Epaphras, who came to Christ under his ministry. And now he is writing to encourage this church, and he opens the letter saying, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. You and I, whoever we are in Christ, and that should be the identity that matters to us. More than any other label we would put on ourselves, no matter how proud we are to be a father or a mother or a son or whatever career we have, whatever title we would give ourselves, that we are a Christian and that we have a calling from God should be the most important thing about us. And we should know that it is only by the will of God. Paul says, I'm not an apostle for, from my will. I'm not an apostle from what I have done. I'm not an apostle because one day I decided 
You know what? I think giving up my riches and my notoriety and being beaten and imprisoned for the gospel sounds like a great idea. He is an apostle and he is in chains by the will of God. And Timothy, our brother, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. He prays this blessing over the church that we often see in his letters. He is writing to the Christians in Colossae. Many of them, Gentiles, that's the majority of the church, non-Jews, although there may have been some Jews there. Paul is writing to them. He calls them saints, the set-apart ones in Christ, faithful. Faithful in Jesus, in their walk with Him. This is what he has heard of the church. He goes on in verse 3, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now that we there is likely Paul's companions. If you look at the end of Colossae, you will see, excuse me, end of Colossians, you will see a list of names of people who were with Paul, ministering to him, somehow connected to him while he was in prison. If you go and look at Philemon, he wrote the letter to the Colossians and he wrote the letter to Philemon who lived in Colossae at the same time. You will see that same List of names, they are with him, and somehow they are having prayer meetings. They're praying together. I'll tell you that coming out of our month of prayer last year in September, we do that every year, we'll be doing it again this year, but coming out of that month of prayer, one of the things that I've been most encouraged by as we began as elders, as the pastors in this church, to meet once a week and pray for you. One hour every week without fail for almost a year. There has been some form of us. Not all of us have been there every week. We meet over FaceTime. We pray for you. We pray for this church in general. We pray for you by name. I don't say that to boast. I want to say that in the same manner that Paul says it to Colossae. We always thank God for you when we pray for you. Because it should be an encouragement that you're being prayed for. It also points to our own responsibility. It's not just the leaders that pray for the church. All of us should pray for one another every week. It should be part of our routine that we are praying for people in our local community, in our body of believers. And it is my testimony to you that I cannot even remember now all of the prayers that we have seen God answer week after week after week for you and for this church. Some of those prayers immediate, within hours or just a couple of days of us praying something for you, something for this church, we see God move. We developed a team of intercessors. An intercessors team that is... Their responsibility, what they have signed up for is every week is to pray for the church. That team is open for you if you want to join it, but it is the call of all of us that we would pray for one another. And then look at part of these prayers. We thank God. Prayer is not about, is not just about us laying requests before the Lord. It is thanksgiving to God. Our prayers should be filled with thanks to God for what He is doing. Thanks to one another. If you are encouraged and exhorted by someone in this church seeing their faith and their love, you should thank God for that. 
It's His work in them. It was good and right for us to start today singing together thanks to God and doing so with as much energy and and breath as we could. It is good and right to thank God. And Paul says we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray for you. And then look at what motivates their prayers in verse 4. Since, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. So Paul is saying, word has gotten to us of the incredible faith you have in Jesus. And word has gotten to us about the love that you have for the church. And when we hear about that, our only response is to thank God. To go before God and say, thank you for what you're doing in Colossae. Thank you for what you're doing in Agape. Thank you for the faith that these people have. If you see faith in this church, if you see faith in one another, if you see works of love in one another, go to God in prayer and thank Him for that. This is the motivation of Paul and his team in their prayers. We always thank God since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. Now look at this. When I was reading it this week, verse 5, it's this next phrase that jumped off the page at me. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now here's why it jumped out at me. If you read those two verses together, Paul says, we have heard of your faith in Christ and of the love you have for the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Now here's what I want it to say. Because you have faith in Jesus, you have hope. Because you love one another, you have hope. But what I saw when I was reading this on Monday was the opposite. Paul says, the reason you have faith in Jesus is because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. The reason that you love one another is because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. In this passage, it is not faith and love producing hope. It is hope producing faith and love. And that is going to be the heart of our sermon today in just a moment. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Let's keep going. Of this, of this hope, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. You could circle that, all of that together. Word of truth, the gospel. Paul is calling the gospel the word of truth. He is calling the word of truth the gospel. That is important for us to know. The gospel is the good news, and Paul is saying it is the word of truth. The Bible is not a man's opinion. The good news about Jesus is not what we think might be true. Paul says it is the truth. Anything that opposes this is false. Anything this says is truth. The word of truth is the good news of the gospel. So this hope has come to you, verse 6, as indeed it has come to the whole world and it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. There's a lot in that verse. The gospel is universal. It is not for just a certain segment of people 
or races. It is for everyone. It is universal all over the world. The gospel is going to the whole world. And in the entire world, it is changing lives and it is increasing. For anyone who opposes the gospel, they oppose Christianity. They say it is false. They say there is no God. They say there is no gospel about Jesus. They must deal with the apologetic that for 2,000 years the gospel has survived and it has increased and it has borne fruit in people's lives. It has changed people's lives the way it has Paul's. Not just adding to their life and making it a little bit better, but radically changing their lives. Radically turning them from death to life. And Paul says it is doing it in Colossae and it is doing it in the entire world. It has been happening among you since the first time you heard it and you understood the grace of God in truth. That is another phrase you should circle. Grace and truth are not opposed to one another. Paul says the truth of the gospel is the grace of God. And God's grace is revealed in the truth of His gospel. And in verse 7, it is going into all the world just as it has come to you, and you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. I did a podcast this week on verse 7. If you are interested in the Building Up podcast, I talk about verse 7 because I don't have time to do it today, but about being a faithful minister the way Epaphras was. What we believe is he came to know Jesus. He was from Colossae. He went to Ephesus when Paul was there, learned the gospel, went back to Colossae, and shared with Jesus about uh, shared about Jesus with people, and the church there was formed. He probably didn't set out to be a church planner, but in God's sovereignty, that's what he became. Epaphras is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Last phrase that I would point out to you in the Bible. You will see the phrase in the flesh. You will see the phrase in the spirit. The phrase in the flesh means you are being swayed by your flesh. You're being led by your humanity. In the spirit means you are swayed by the Spirit of God. You are led by His presence. Paul says that what we have heard about is this great love you have for one another in the spirit, being led by the spirit. I want to point out to you that he just said, their love for one another came from their hope laid up for them in heaven. Now, he says, their love for one another comes from the Spirit. That is not a contradiction. That is teaching us something. That the hope we're about to talk about produces faith and love, and it is doing so by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, let's talk about what I have felt compelled by all week is that our focus in this text would be verse 3, verse 4, verse 5 on the power of the hope in the Christian's life. And I want to start with a general life truth that I want you to think about. And so if you're a note taker, if you have one of the worship guides, pull that out if you'd like to do the fill in the blanks to kind of go along. We're going to start with this life truth, and this is a general observation about life. And we're going to, I'm going to try to show you in just a moment how this relates to 
our spiritual lives, but here's a general life truth. Hope motivates you to action, while hopelessness halts your progress. Hope motivates you to action, hopelessness halts your progress. What is hope? There's different ways that hope can be talked about. But hope is this objective reality. It is this thing that you are eagerly expecting to happen. You desire to happen and you expect that it will and you have an eagerness about it. And when you are hoping for something, whether you realize it or not, it has a powerful effect on your life. You will act towards something and because of something that you hope for. It is a catalyst for you to do something. Now, the opposite of that is hopelessness. When you don't have hope, when you are in despair, then you have no expectation. You are not thinking eagerly and expecting something to happen. And what typically follows is apathy. Because if you have no expectation and no hope, In a situation, you will tend to simply not act, to give up. I will use maybe the best illustration I could come up with that I think most of us probably have some understanding of, and that is sports psychology. Any sports team that perhaps you have played on or maybe you're a fan of, the hope at the beginning of the game is always what? To win. That's the hope. I hope to win the game. That's the eager expectation. And so teams and fans act toward hope. As the game goes on, if it's going well, it's going your way, things are happening that are good, and the game plan is coming together, and hope begins to do what? Increase. And as hope increases, the team usually plays better. The more hope they have, the more in sync they are, and they play well. But if that game starts going south, and it starts falling apart, and things are not going well, and hopelessness starts setting in, what do you see coaches doing? They're doing their best to get the guys, get the team going again. Why? Because hopelessness will lead them to give up, to just stop playing. Now, you can apply that from sports psychology to anything in your life. Your marriage. If you are filled with hope for the success of your marriage, you put effort into it. You try. When hopelessness in a marriage sets in, people tend to give up. You can apply it to getting a raise or career advancement. If you're hoping for a raise and hoping for a job, you're likely going to be motivated in how you work and how you treat people around you and how you interact with your boss. Or a hobby. Maybe you want to learn an instrument. Or you want to learn play a sport or to do a hobby. And so when you are hopeful that you can learn and progress, 
You try hard. If you reach a point where it's just like, I can't do this and hopelessness sets in, you give up. Now, I hope you see that general life principle. Now I want you to take it and apply it to faith because it's the same thing. When you have hope, you will grow in faith. You will be motivated. You will pursue the object of your hope. When you have hope of walking in your calling, when you have hope of getting connected in a body of believers, you will be motivated to act and to try. But when hopelessness sets in, and you begin to think, God's not listening to me, or I'm not growing, or people don't care about me, you will withdraw. You will give up because that's what hopelessness does. Now, I want you to keep that in mind. Hope motivates you to action. Hopelessness halts your progress. And I want us to bring it back to the text. So look again at verse 4 and 5. Paul has just said, We always thank God when we pray for you since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. I would underline that. And of the love that you have for all the saints. First and second greatest commandments there. We have heard of your love for Jesus. We've heard of your love for one another. Because of. Anytime in Scripture you say because or because of, then what that tells you is what has just been said. Now we're going to be told the reason for it. So here's the reason for their faith in Christ and their love that they have for the saints. The hope laid up for you in heaven. Paul is saying you are motivated to action by the hope laid up for you in heaven. You are motivated to faith in Christ and love for one another by the hope that is in heaven. It stands to reason then, if you don't have hope in heaven laid up there, if you have hopelessness, then your faith will be non-existent or waning and your love for one another will be non-existent or waning. So, in your notes, what is this hope laid up in heaven? What is he talking about? What is that objective hope that Paul is referencing, that they have, that is laid up for them in heaven? And he gives us a clue in the second part of verse 5. Of this hope you have heard in the word of truth, the gospel. So this hope that he is talking about is gospel hope. It is good news hope. And so I want us to explore that for a moment. What is this gospel that they hope in? What is this good news that the church in Colossae is hoping in and therefore producing in them faith and love? In your notes, it is the good news that should be presented in the light of God's holiness and your sinfulness. Paul calls it the word of truth. And so it's been said many times before by pastors who are better at their craft than I am, so I'll steal from them. You will never understand the good news unless you first grasp the bad news. The problem with our Christianity or our presentation of the gospel in America among many people is we want to present the gospel this way. Here's good news. You love yourself, God loves you too. You have good plans for your life, good news. God has good plans for your life as well. Come to Christ because He loves you and has great plans for your life. Now, are those things true? Yes. 
but it's leaving out the bad news. Here's the light that we must present the gospel in. That is, God is holy. He does not sin, and He cannot be at peace with those who do sin. He is a just judge who will judge every soul on the earth that has ever lived. They will not be judged in comparison to one another. They will be judged in comparison to His holiness. And we are sinful people. At our core, we are sinners. We rebel against God. We desire what is contrary to Him. And we do what is contrary to His Word. And if we stop there, there is no hope. Because only perfect people will be in the presence of God for all eternity. Did I misspeak? No. Only people who have been perfected will be in the presence of God for all of eternity. And none of us in this room are perfected in our humanity. That's the bad news. Here's the gospel, the good news. I'll read you Romans 8.3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. What did God condemn? In that verse, not us, but sin. God put sin on trial. God judged sin and sinfulness, and He condemned it in the flesh. Whose flesh? His Son's flesh. He sent His Son, who is perfect, to be among us and live on this earth, to be tempted as we are, to experience grief and pain as we do, and never sin, to live that perfected life. And then Jesus went to the cross and He died under judgment as a criminal, but not for His sins, for ours. The good news of the Gospel is that anyone who trusts in Christ now has the perfection of Christ, the perfection of Christ, applied to their account, their life. It's like you have no money. It's not even you don't have no money. You have negative money. Your account is overdrawn. You have no hope of paying your debt. You can swap your card. You can write as many checks as you want. There is nothing being paid off because you have nothing. And someone who has everything comes along and they take your nothingness and they give you all that they have. And now your debts are paid. That is what Jesus did. That is the good news. That is the word of truth. That is the hope of the gospel. That you and I can have peace with God. But not just peace with God. Not just where God looks at us and says, okay, I will let you be here. I'll let you be around me. I will tolerate you. No. 
in your notes. It is the good news presented in light of God's holiness and sinfulness. It is also all of the rich promises of redemption that were secured for you by Jesus. It's not just God tolerates you, but now it is that all of the promises of the Word of God, all of the richness of His kingdom is yours. It has been granted to you. In verse 6, this has come to you as indeed the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and you understood the grace of God in truth. The truth is we deserve nothing but death. The truth is Christ has stood in our place. The truth is if we believe on Jesus, we will have peace with God. And more than that, we will have the riches of His kingdom. I will give you a preview of next week in Colossians 1. In verse 12 through 14, Paul says, Give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Oh, it's so rich. Yes, you're forgiven. There, There are things that you have done and things that I have done that no one on this planet knows about. There are thoughts that we have had. There's desires that we have had. There are things that we have done that no one knows about. And it would cripple us with fear to know that those things could be exposed. And God knows all of them, and He has forgiven you of them. If you look to Christ, you are forgiven of everything you have ever done. You are forgiven of all that you ever will do. But not just forgiven, you have been delivered from that domain of darkness. He has rescued you, delivered you, snatched you out of it, and He has transferred you to the kingdom of His Son. And you belong there. And look at that. He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of that kingdom. The riches of that kingdom. The inheritance. Everything that belongs to it. The power. The promises of heaven. Of eternal life. But not just eternal life. Of peace with God. And of all of His authority. In that kingdom. Everything that Christ was going to inherit, you have been qualified to receive it yourself. The riches of redemption, that's the good news. That's the hope. That's the hope. That is the objective hope. And what has happened in your notes? When you hear that hope, it awakens and increases in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. There are people that hear that message and it does nothing for them. They ridicule it and they walk away from it. If you are in this room and you believe that message, it means when you heard it, the Spirit of God awakened that message in you. He awakened hope in you. He brought it to life. You didn't understand that message because you're better than everybody else. I don't know how it all works, but I am telling you, it was awakened in you by the Spirit. It is not your own doing. It is the power of God in you. And if that hope is in you, it increases in you. As the Gospel increases, the hope increases. What happens as your hope increases? Your motivation increases. Your love for one another increases. When you hear the rich promises of the good news and you are happy about it, you say, that's what I want. 
That's what I want. That is what I need. Eternal life. The riches of the kingdom of God. Peace with God. I need Jesus. And you, in your mind, in your heart, you say, I want to lay hold of that. I will be satisfied by that hope. Your soul leaps for joy because you realize the Bible says you come across it one day. You're reading. Someone says, read Romans. So you start reading Romans and you get to Romans 8 and you come to verse 32 and you stop in your tracks because it says, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? If God did not spare His Son... Will He withhold anything good from you? No. That is the hope that you see and you hear and you say, this is what I want. And being laid up in heaven, it doesn't just mean that you'll only experience when you get to heaven. You will get taste of it on the earth. You won't get the fullness on the earth. You have to be okay with that. You have to hold on. You have to persevere. Your best life will not be in this life. But you will get taste of it. The more you pursue Him, the more you will get taste of it. The more you put down the things of this earth and pick up the things of God, you will get taste of it. You will get experiences with it. He won't withhold it from you. If you're not experiencing that goodness and that taste and that love, it may be because right now, you don't desire it as much as you do worldly things. But when you desire it with your heart, and by the way, I put myself in that category, but the more we desire the kingdom and the experiences and the taste of the kingdom, the more that we will get it. It is a living hope, 1 Peter 1.4 says. Being laid up in heaven means it is kept secure with Christ. No one can take that from you. It is not an inheritance you can lose or be cheated out of. It is yours. It is secured at the throne of God where Christ is. And this awakening, this increase happens as the Spirit works in you. Go back. Remember, love in the Spirit in verse 8. Are we motivated to love one another by this hope? Absolutely. But it is the Spirit working in us. The Spirit of God working in us that increases that. Hope in Jesus in your notes. This is the reality that I want us to get. I said I wanted us to know how critically important hope is. Hope in that good news. Hope in Jesus is the difference between mere belief and saving faith. Hoping in Jesus and hoping in the good news, hoping in the gospel is the difference between mere belief and saving faith. Okay, are we saved by belief? Yes. John 20 verse 31 says, John said, I wrote these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. But here's what I want to warn us about. Culturally, how do we think about belief? People say things like, do you believe in love at first sight? Do you believe in soulmates? Do you believe in Bigfoot? Don't answer that one. 
we ask that question as in it's a, it's a question of existence. Do you believe this exists? Agape, it is not enough to believe Jesus exists to be saved. Demons believe Jesus exists. G- demons and the kingdom of darkness believe every word of the Bible. They believe in the resurrection. They believe in the life to come. They're not saved. Why? What I give to you this morning, what I submit to you is because they don't hope in it. It's not believe. It's believe to the point of hope. That's my hope. Christ is my hope. What He has done in redemption is my hope. My hope is not my bank account. My hope is not what these people think of me. My hope is not my career. My hope is not what my children do or what my parents do. My hope is not what my friends do. Everyone else may fail me. Christ will not. That's my hope. That's my hope. Saving faith begins with hope. I see my sin. I know the evil that I'm capable of. I know I'm guilty before God. My hope is in Christ. I hope in His promises that He will forgive me. When sin comes calling and I give in to temptation, my hope is He forgives me. And that hope motivates me to faithful living. My hope is He cleans me. When, when those memories come up of the things that I have done, I run to Him. Why? Because I have the hope that He will wash that record clean. That hope stirs me to act. I exercise my face, my faith, and it starts by confessing Jesus as Lord. You are everything to me. You are my hope. You are my Lord. I will follow You with all the help of the Spirit because You are enough. And then look in your notes. When you hope in Christ... You will cling to Christ. That's what it looks like. Listen, don't say automatically, oh, absolutely, I hope in Christ. Look at your life. Do you cling to Him? Do you abide to Him, with Him? Do you run to Him? Is He your rock? Is He your salvation? Is He everything to you? I'm not asking if you show up to church on Sunday morning or if you go to a small group. I'm asking you, do you cling to Jesus as your hope? Because if you hope in Him, you will cling to Him. If you don't hope in Him, you will probably have a religious arm-length relationship with Him where every now and then you turn to Him to tidy your life up. That's not hope. Hope motivates you to faith in Christ. It motivates you to trust in Jesus. I don't have time to preach this. Write it down. Hebrews 11.1 You probably know it if you're an ESV Reader, it says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. That word assurance is probably not the best translation of that Greek word that means essence. If you go to the King James, it says, faith is the substance of what you hope for. Faith is the reality, the CSB says, of what you hope for. It's what he's teaching. What is faith? It is when you have the reality of what you hope for. That hope has produced in you faith. I hope. We think of it, I think of it differently. Maybe you'll, maybe I'm the only one in the room that assumes faith brings hope. Paul says, by the power of the Holy Spirit, hope brings faith. 
when you hope for all the rich promises of redemption, you will cling to Christ. And then look in your notes. How does love come in? Saving faith is ever active in works of love. In a sense, what I'm saying to you that I think the Bible is showing us is hope births faith, births love. Hope brings faith, brings love. Galatians 5.6, For in Christ Jesus there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, talking about not Jews or Gentiles, only faith working through love. 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul said, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. When you have faith in Christ, what comes out of you is love for one another. Where does your faith come from? Hope in the riches of the good news. Clinging to Christ brings love for the saints. What Paul is talking about in Colossae, we have heard of your faith in Christ and of the love that you have for all the saints. Those are actions of the soul. You cling to Jesus and you love one another from your soul. And hope is the catalyst for that. So I'm going to come back to where we started. Hope motivates you to action. Hopelessness hinders your progress. It halts what is happening in your life. What I wanted you to see today is that hope is critical. I want you to ask the question of yourself. Do I hope in Christ? And do I see that by saving faith and love for the saints? Hope brings to you and I faith and love. And hopelessness leaves you aimless. If you lose hope in the gospel, you will wander from God. If you cling to the gospel and the message about Jesus and the person of Jesus, you will not give up. You will be motivated to act. Here's why this is important. We're going to do this call to prayer to end. Loyalty to Jesus is going to cost you something. I don't know what. It is likely already cost you something. But the longer you live for Jesus, it will cost you something. It may cost you being able to do whatever you want to with your money. Because you will find conviction to give. It may cost you friends. It may cost you a job one day. Loyalty to Christ will cost you something. What did Jesus say? In this world you will have trouble. What keeps you from giving up in this world? What did He say next? Take heart. Does that not mean have hope? In this world you will have trouble, but have hope. I have overcome the world. So you look to Christ and you don't give up. Some troubles He will remove from your lap. Some troubles He will keep from ever darkening your door. You'll never even know about it. Some troubles you will have to deal with. But if your hope is in Him, you will cling to Him. 
If your hope isn't in Him, if your hope is in just He'll make your life better, you will not cling to Him. Because there are some troubles He will leave in your lap. But if you look to Him, that He has overcome the world, you will not give up. You will say the way the disciples did when Jesus says, are you going to leave me? And they said, where else are we going to go? You have life. What about people? What about love for people? Have you noticed that's sometimes hard? Have you noticed that people are hard to deal with? Your life of selfless, selfless love and forgiveness will be hard. So why should you keep doing it? Because your hope is in Christ and He loves those people. One of the most profound things that ever got said to me was by someone who I was in conflict with. We were brothers, we were brothers in Christ, but we were having a very intense meeting because we were in conflict with one another. And he looked at me and he said something that I've never forgotten. He said, I'm not asking you to trust me. I'm asking you to trust the Spirit of God that is in me. Sometimes we're going to offend and hurt each other, and if it just came down to trusting one another, there's not a reason to do that. Our hope is Christ is the Lord of all who call upon Him. So we may not always be able to say, I trust that person, but we can always trust the Spirit of God that is in us. So look at this call to prayer. And it's not just something that I want to fill in. It is actually a call to prayer this morning. I want you to take this in this service as we sing together to end, but I also want you to take it to heart as you leave. Who is hopeless among us? It's a valid question. We may have a good mask on. Where are you hopeless? What is happening in your life right now to where you would say, I look at that situation, I can tell I'm losing hope. God has ordained you to hear this message today. That you might look to Christ alone for your hope. One of the things I prayed today is that God would reveal to us if we have placed our hope somewhere other than Christ. Take in the message again and again, the gospel message. You need to hear it for the very first time. It needs to awaken faith in you and you need to look to Jesus, but then you need to hear it over and over and over and over again. Why is it so important for you to pick this word up every week? Why is it so important for you to pick this word up every day? Because you need to hear the gospel and let your hope increase. The enemy, God, he tells us we're too busy, we're too tired. What is he doing? He's cutting us off from hope so that He can come around and attack us and destroy us and convince us that life is hopeless. Take in this message again and again of His sufficiency for your needs and His supremacy over your circumstances. Take hold of Christ in your heart and do not let go. That is what I want for us today. It's what I want for you today.
In this world, you will have trouble. What is the situation that you are hopeless in? Take in the message. Christ is sufficient for your needs. Cry out to Him to remove the trouble. And He may. But until that moment comes, trust He is sufficient. Where are you hopeless because you are defeated? Take in the message of His supremacy. Nothing has authority over Him. Nothing has authority over Christ. Take hold of Him in your heart and don't let go.